0: Welcome to Looney Engineering, a Canadian software engineering podcast. My name is Chris Naismith, a senior engineer at Hopper.
1: And I'm Andrew Clarkson, a junior software developer at Universe.
0: All right, let's talk about some
1: technical debt today. This is something we're all gonna run into all the time throughout our careers. uh, Something I've even started running into in my uh, my short time
0: so far in
1: software. Uh,
0: Chris, what is
1: technical debt?
0: Well, first off, I mean it's something that we've been meaning to get to on the show for quite some time and we've always put it on the back burner. Are you saying But that's pretty technical debt of what we want to talk about? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> <But> I was <laughs> I was trying to get the, this <laughs> this episode is something we've always mean meant to get to but it's always uh, just been put to the side. Um, but yeah, so so technical debt is is pretty much that. It's it's often um, You know, technical trade-offs that are made during a project, uh, usually in the pursuit of like being able to like move quickly. It's often like created consciously and just sort of happens over time. This can be anything from like lowering your coding standards, using less performant patterns, maybe over time libraries update and you choose, you opt not to update those packages just because you don't want to, you know, have to update your references if APIs change, stuff like that. And oftentimes, those older blocks of code that are out of date using less preferred patterns are now slowing down the amount of features that you're able to put out or increases the amount of time that it takes to fix any bugs that are in the code. Yeah, and I think
1: uh, from what I've seen anyways, the longer you let it go, depending on what it is, the worse it can get. Because when you do things like uh, you don't upgrade your packages, you don't keep up with what's going on, it just gets harder and harder to actually do it when you get there. So all of a sudden you're a few versions behind and you're like, Oh, now we need to upgrade this to in order to do this other thing. And you're like, Oh, we got to spend all this time to upgrade and get over there. So I think there's a real, there's a real trade off and balance that has to be found of keeping things upgraded, maintaining your tech debt, deciding on what your what you're okay with in your software. Um, at, at what point are we going to say no this we can't do this anymore and at what point are we going to say no we're we're good with this so like you said it is a very conscious decision in a lot of points
0: yeah and i've i've worked on some projects where you know as engineers i think it's very common where we want to reinvent the wheel we want to you know build stuff from scratch but at in the same breath developers are also very lazy where we want to use things that exist out of the wild um, you know open source libraries Um, maybe some off-the-shelf software that we can like integrate with as using an API. Those are all like different things that we want to sometimes use so that we don't have to focus on anything like that. Um, But one of the issues that I've seen in projects is where, as someone that works on the front end, they say, you know, we don't want to build every component from scratch. So we're going to use like a UI library that already exists. And one that I'm quite familiar with is material UI. And so material comes with its own like opinionated, you know, API, it comes with its pre-built library of components. And then pretty soon you start getting into cases. Maybe it's three months down the road, six, maybe even a year down the road where you want to do something that is not very material. It's very different. And so sometimes people will say, oh, we'll just, we'll theme this component in this area to look a little bit different or. All of a sudden we say, oh, we want to change the branding a little bit. We want things to be more, you know, squared off than rounded. And pretty soon you end up getting to a point where in your project, you chose a UI library. And now it's almost this technical debt solution where you would actually be able to move faster if you weren't using these pre-built components, if you just built from scratch. Kind of the worst of
1: both worlds. yeah Yep. We use uh, a lot of semantic UI and we see the same issues. We look at it and for putting things together, for building things very quickly, it's awesome. And then all of a sudden it's exactly what you say. Oh, let's move these things. Let's adjust these things. Oh, we need a little more marginal. Adjust these things. All of a sudden you've got a CSS file full of important tags because it just doesn't want you to do these things. You're not supposed to be doing these things. And I mean, it, it looks great how it is, but you, you look like everyone else too, which is kind of the an issue but also a good thing especially if you don't have designers it's the designers that are making it beautiful and then all of a sudden you're like wow this looks significantly better
0: exactly and oftentimes you know you opt to use that ui library because you want to get new features out or maybe you're a startup that's trying to get to market as quickly as possible um you'll look at the current scene of ai right now if you wanted to build an ai application very quick you're not going to build everything from scratch you're going to use stuff that you can just npm install and then boom there you go Um, the problem is is if you continue down that path um, and you want to differentiate yourself so you don't look like everyone else like you know go back 10 years and look at every bootstrap website that was out there um, you know it starts to become a problem the other thing is is and I've, I've noticed this on a lot of projects, is you use a library and they come out with a new version. So React Router DOM, uh, for instance, I worked on a project that was using version three very many years ago and version four came out. And it was entirely non-compatible with version three if you were using some like nested route features. Uh, they wanted everything to be very flat so that all of your routes were declared in just one thing, uh, usually with a switch around it, and we we couldn't update it was gonna require too much um refactor in order to support the next version but what ended up happening is version 5 came out and we're like man version 5 has these new features it would be really nice if we could use version 5 but we're on version 3 and because we didn't keep up with the updates over time it was just we pretty much had to rewrite how we were using um, the browser router. Um, It was unfortunate. It took probably at least two full sprints of refactor work because of everything from like the with router hook was being used all over the app. And we had to switch the hooks or we didn't have to, but we opted to just to, you know, streamline a lot of that. Um, It was, it was quite, a heavy lift. Um, And if we had just paid a little bit more attention as we were going a little bit here, a little bit there, it would have gone a long way versus having to do a a full rebuild of our routing.
1: So it sounds like, and I think this is a common thing, you said it was too much work at the time. It wasn't that it was too much work. It was more work than you wanted to put in until it was painful enough that you needed to fix it. And I feel like that encompasses tech debt. Yeah absolutely we we don't have the ability the desire the want to do this right now but eventually it hits a point where you're like it hurts too much the pain point reaches a point where you're just like no we have to we we gotta put everything aside for a little bit we have to deal with this in order to get maybe that feature that came out that we've been waiting on or maybe that fixes something else that we've been having a problem with or we're like this is a thing that we've needed we've wanted like we're gonna make this happen now so let's talk about identifying technical debt so There's lots of problems in software. We're all very familiar with bugs. We're all very familiar. um, I guess not if you're looking for work right now, but if you are in early career and onwards, you're familiar with the roadmap. You know what product wants to build. If you're a startup, you have a bit of a different way about this. You might not have uh, dedicated product people, but you kind of know where you're going with things, the things that we want to do. But when it comes to actually looking at what is technical debt, I think it I think we've identified a little bit here. So you might have something like uh, code that is not performant. You might have made a choice when you're building the software that was maybe easier at the time that was pre-built, that was cheaper is a big one. Um, and now you're at a point with your software and with your company, maybe it's making more money, maybe we're in a better place. Maybe we got funded and. Or maybe our, uh, our user base got huge. Maybe we blew up and all of a sudden things that weren't issues are definitely issues. And those things, those um, decisions that we made earlier on in the software development process, all of a sudden they need to be dealt with. It doesn't make it a bug now. It, it's something that we just need to address because we made a decision. That decision worked at the time. And we made that decision consciously. And we say, okay, now it's time to fix this. It's time to upgrade this, to change this, to make it more performant, whatever it takes.
0: Yeah, and technical debt can be at a lot of different levels of the application as well. It can be sort of the like foundation framework that you're using. Um, for example, in several projects, you know, I've used uh, Create React app and in a lot of ways, um, the React team is no longer recommending using Create React App for a lot of projects. They recommend alternatives like using uh, Next and Remix if you're needing like server-side rendering or static site generation, or using if you're wanting like a static app using something like a build tool like uh, uh, Vite. Is Vite fight? <laughs> we yeah. talked about this I, in a previous. We have one talked last. about this. Um,
1: yeah, but it's not so much a static one, is it? Not
0: uh, it's like well, it's it's. Or- for- well, so Gatsby, like when I say a static site, I don't mean like static site generation, but just oh, where it builds yep. static markup.
1: Yeah, yeah. Know, understood. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, and so when you um, when you have a like a lot of projects that are using Create React App, you could potentially run into a scenario where they stop supporting it, and you know at some point addressing that is going to be some level of work. Um, additionally, maybe the technical debt is. Uh, maybe not as like root level, it's more, there's a feature and you have a tight deadline, you do some less performant ways of doing something, you make some assumptions or you rule out certain scenarios um, just so that you can get to market quicker. I've worked mm-hmm. on stuff where we do a V zero. We I put that in quotes, V zero of a feature. So that way we know it's not you know the solution, but we know it is a solution. And then we do a fast follow. Maybe it takes like a month to Um, once we get some data on that feature to figure out who's actually using it, is it something that customers want? Is it something um, maybe they have feedback and we completely change from the ground up how that feature works and spending, you know, a month or two on a feature versus a couple of weeks. um, It's not as in the case that you said, it's not as expensive to the company to do a two week prototype proof of concept than a full feature two month project in order to work on something. And so Hopefully, when you're creating a technical debt or identifying technical debt, um, you're able to sort of like put it into a box that you can easily um, switch out at a future point. Because if everything is like relying on a feature and that feature has a huge amount of tech debt, then everything that's built off of that technically has some form of tech debt associated with it. Yeah, definitely i've
1: got another actually really good example here that's uh, outside of the ones we've talked about and that is sometimes you build something and it is the best at the moment it is something that totally makes sense um it's a framework or it's a language or something that's just the not even du jour but it's this is how we this is the paradigm right now this is how things work and then depending on how long lived that project is it's eventually going to become outdated. And this is something that I've been working on lately is migrating some uh, some of our pages and functionality from an older JS framework to React. And it's been really interesting to kind of look at, there, it, it's such a, a dated project now, but when I talk to the people who are here and who worked on it and who built it originally, like it was the state
0: of the art thing. Like this was the way you did JavaScript. This is how you built, Web apps, and then a lot of companies that live and build multiple projects, they would probably say, "Man, you should have seen the previous project that this, you know, was the replacement to, because that project was pretty gnarly, and this was, you know, the latest and greatest at the time."
1: That's it. And so it worked and it made us a lot of money and it got us to where we are now. So a lot of people throw shade on these things and I used to, I'd be like, what is this? This is awful. And then somebody was like, you know what though? Like it made us a lot of money. It worked really well. It's a big reason why we're here today. And I became, came around to like respecting that a lot more. I still don't like working on that project, which is part of my like burning desire to replace it. But I have a lot of respect for where that got us and and a lot of the a lot of it is the kind of discomfort with that framework it is very dated it's not the way we we do things today so for really it's just a discomfort and things that i don't understand and then it's not worthwhile learning all about it it's actually easier to just upgrade it and just change it over to the the newer way of doing it but there's a lot of time being invested so there's definitely now a cost to it but the cost has been amortized over how many years so it's really no big deal
0: exactly yeah and when it also comes to identifying tech debt there are other solutions that are out there as well it doesn't have to be a human that's doing it um have you does your company use any sort of like static analysis tools like sonar cube um or codacy or codacy not that i'm familiar with but i wouldn't be surprised if they did Okay. Um, We use, uh, and just to give like a quick explanation, we use a product that's called Codacy. And what it does is it's like this DevOps intelligence tool where it will scan um, your source code on pull requests. And what it is able to do is similar to like ESLint and ESLint is another tool for being able to manage like code quality. uh, But Codacy will sort of attribute a number Uh, to the code complexity that is in the repo. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have a lot of duplicated code. Maybe you created a nested ternary that is like five levels deep. And it will give a uh, metric to either the code base as a whole or just maybe that PR itself. And what it can do is it can let you be able to sort of get insights into your repo of being like, oh, like our tech debt is probably really high just coming from these, um, static analysis tools. And maybe we should take some time in order to address it. We have a lot of duplicated code. We have a lot of, um, you know, maybe less optimal ways of doing it. And like code complexity is another part of technical debt. You know, we make something complex and then three months later, someone needs to go into that section and they have no idea what's doing it. In fact, even sometimes yourself, you go back to it and you have no idea why you wrote it that way. What did I do? Who was this? Who wrote who, who this, this? It was me. <laughs> it was
1: me. <sighs> <laughs> no, that totally makes sense. Um okay. So what about the impact that this has on your software, on your company,
0: on your engineers, on your teams? Well, I think the the main thing is um it increases the cost. Like that's ultimately what we do. Like everything pretty much has a cost associated with it. And so oftentimes in order to move to market quicker, um, it is cheaper for us, but at some point, building new features is going to be more expensive because it takes more time. Um, And that's really the big one. So, you know, I think we've all worked on projects where we have a project manager who says, hey, we wanna add this new feature. How much time do we think it'll be? And we go, I don't know it's gonna be at least like four weeks and they go four weeks it's just adding a modal to this page why does it take so long and having to explain why um, all of that happened like that's really the impact is something that should take maybe just a couple days or a week or two ends up taking a month and that Mm -hmm. is expensive
1: yeah i've definitely seen lots of that it's like i need to dig into this figure out what is going on because it probably made sense all the time, but we weren't thinking about this feature. And then you just, you've got your fingers and your hands into so many different things. And then yeah, that that little feature becomes gigantic. And then there's all these questions and you're like, well, this is just
0: kind of the way it is. Yeah. The the other thing um, that it can do is in a code base with a lot of technical debt is it's quite common to create a lot of bugs, um, you know? either creating new bugs or uh, creating regressions um, in bugs, things that were previously fixed. Um, I've worked, and some of, I would say technical debt often is associated with the lack of testing Um, Mm -hmm. because if we don't have any tests, then it is hard to know when we break something. And oftentimes we're breaking something because the code base is quite complex. So they're all sort of like interlinked together. Um, And then long-term, you know, If we're introducing bugs and we're having it difficult to build new features we the company itself will be losing revenue in the long term because you either might maybe users are getting a buggy experience so they they end up going elsewhere right they go to your competitor or whatever it be so you end up losing potential customers and revenue in the long run additionally you might end up creating some sort of um conflict uh internally between the teams that can be hard to manage between like the engineering department and maybe um, management or uh, product because they have this like lack of confidence in the engineering team in order to build new features. They go, it takes like a month for them to do this. Why does it take so long?
1: Yeah. And uh, you brought up a really great example of the basis of tech debt. there is the decision to not do testing. That can be a huge one. No, we need, we don't have time to do that. We just move forward with it. We'll deal with it later. And then that's exactly what it, you were going to deal with it later. Uh, how about in your career? Have you got any good examples of where things blew up spectacularly
0: because of uh, excessive technical debt? I wouldn't necessarily say spectacularly blew up, um, but I one of the projects that I'm working on right now, it takes a considerable amount of time to make any changes to it. And this is a lot of technical debt that's sort of compounding on itself. So we use a lot of SAS in our product and it's not using SaaS modules. And in part with that, you have different areas that are overriding um, styles on certain components rather than having it at like a component level. And so it makes it very difficult to sometimes make changes to base components or even in a per section, um, because you know you might be changing, oh, let's change the font size here, or the padding there and the margins there. And pretty soon you have this like duplicated code that is throughout. And so something that I'm working on right now is we're trying to change the entire layout of our application, which has so, so much of assumptions in every single area. Um, so that's something that we're trying to untangle um, but we're just trying to add literally a new feature that's a banner and this banner you would assume would take like half a day a day in order to implement but because i'm having to change the entire layout across the entire application it's probably going to be at least a week or two in order to add a single banner and it's just because of everything from like there's hard coded heights everywhere there's like mm-hmm. relative unit like a uh, position relative with some like padding top to assume that that, um, height is always going to be there. It's, it is a mess. And that's, uh, that's what I'm currently working on right now. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> what about you? Is there anything, any real world examples that you have of, uh, technical debt having impact? Um, I mean, not so much blowing up,
1: but the one that I, uh, just mentioned that I'm doing a, a migration from an older Amber project to react right now, the problem came because of our growth. So one of our features works for the majority of people, but some of our hosts are so huge and they have so much going on that we had a function that was taking several minutes to return to complete. So it was pulling down so much data. It was doing so many things that it would often actually crash. It would hit the four minute mark and it would be like, Nope, we're not doing this effects a percent of a percent of our people, but for those people, it's very, very painful. So um, I actually spoke to uh, Taz Singh, who was on the uh, coffee chats last night, and this was something he brought up and it was something that's very painful, but doesn't happen very often. And then you go through that scale of happens very often, but isn't painful. And you've got everything in between. But this was one we looked at, and product manager, I, this is one of my kind of side projects that I've got running. And he said, Can you look at this one? This is like kind of one of my white whales. And I said, Yeah, absolutely. I got looking. I said, Okay, well, we're pulling down way too much data. Like we don't need all the things that are coming in here. There's no pagination, or at least there's not real pagination. Uh, I said, Okay, no problem. Then I looked at the project that we're working on. I was like, Okay, it's actually going to be easier for me to just migrate this to React do all the behind the scene things that makes that play nice together and then build it and now it's like it takes a second like we've knocked it down i think it's 50 or 60 times on average the speed we've got real pagination we're fetching properly like the impact that this makes for a few customers right now is incredible but the thing is the way we're growing it's going forward we're not going to need to think about it because as we get these bigger and bigger hosts uh, doing bigger uh, events it's just it's a non issue now
0: yeah, no, that's awesome. I know at my work, um, we've had issues where we're sending so much data, like a, a network request is responding back with like megabytes worth of data, which, again, it doesn't start off that way. You just go, oh, we don't need pagination here, and then pretty soon, you know, you're getting into hundreds or thousands of entities that come back, each with like, in our case, a formatted a uh, a formatted like JSON um, of that single object would maybe be like a thousand lines long. And Mm -hmm. the other thing is, is we don't need all of that data. We're only using maybe like 1% of the data that comes back, which means that our payload could be potentially 99% smaller if we just didn't include the non-relevant information. Um, But now we're getting into issues where... You know, we're loading several megabytes of data, which means it takes longer for that page to load, which means the spinner's there longer, which also can run into issues with like memory management and the browser, especially on mobile. And it's all of these things where if we had just built it smarter, um, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't need to be solving any of these. If pagination was built from the beginning, we would have less to send to the client we wouldn't have that issue. We could just have a, you know, pagination. Go to page two. Go to page three, and there we go. Um, and same thing with reducing the payload. You know, if we only sent the one percent of data that was needed, we can save ninety nine percent of the network costs on both our end as well as on the user's end.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. It is on both ends. you uh, raised something else. There is everything now is so mobile first. Uh, The majority of users, and it's very dependent on your app, but uh, for ours in particular, we know that the vast majority of users are doing everything on their phones. They're doing it mobile, they're doing it on tablet, they're not sitting at a desktop. So we really have to be cognizant of where are they working from and then, okay, you're mobile. Well, that means that we need to cut down even further, like bare minimum data here to do the things that you need to do. We can't just be all willy-nilly, oh yeah, just send all the data on desktop, like No big deal. I've got a a gigabit connection. It's a total joke. It's just like, bang, it's there. But not everyone has an amazing connection, especially when we look even across North America. Like I'm very lucky to have the connection that I have. But then all of a sudden you're on a phone and maybe you're not 5G. Maybe you're not even LTE. You're running on something older. You're kind of out of the way. And people are wondering like, why is your app taking 20 seconds to load this page? Or (laughs) the one example, they're like four minutes. Um, that's a huge, huge issue because we know how impatient people are. They want instant. They want, maybe except for the fact of your, like your travel search. I know it needs to have a certain amount of time or else we're not searching far enough, but people want things quickly.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a difficult, uh, thing to do and trying to figure out the solutions to it and really what I find is once something becomes a big enough problem for a large enough user base and ultimately again is impacting revenue that's when you start addressing those technical debt items so after determining like the impact uh, of the technical debt you know the next step would be trying to figure out how to like manage it or how to mitigate it one thing that i had mentioned earlier in the episode is um, trying to isolate certain parts of the code base where you are intentionally uh, introducing technical debt so that way you could easily be able to replace that code at any point, um, something that I've done in the past is I'm assuming that you're familiar with like Moment.js, the date formatter. Mm-hmm. So on a lot of projects I use moment. And if you end up importing moment into every single component that's using dates, it can start to become pretty gnarly, and uh, the amount of references all over the code base. And so when moment said, Hey, we're kind of going into like, like n- legacy mode, you know, maintenance mode. Um, here's some alternative libraries that we recommend. You will need to go through your application and replace all existing references to Moment, would, you know, DayJS or Luxin, something that's an alternative. But what you can do in order to isolate that sort of risk is maybe you have... You know, you create a utility function in your project that uses moment directly, and you know you could give it like an enum of maybe we need this specific um, date format um, or we need this other sort of date format, and you can create a wrapper around that dependency so that in the future, if you ever needed to swap out that dependency, maybe again you're going from moment to dayjs, then you just replace that single instance and the rest of your application is using that um, wrapper around it and nothing else in the code base needs to change. So you just end up going from possibly hundreds and thousands of references to a library to just having like a a single line of code that you need to change.
1: I feel like that's good practice regardless. Um, It's often when you start using something, it's just here and it's just here. So each little additional thing is no big deal. But uh, once you kind of recognize that and recognize that tech debt, that's when it's time to start doing things like that and, and thinking forward, which when we're moving fast and breaking things, we we don't do as much of that, but to the extent that you can thinking about like, okay, how is this going to be affected? Where are we at right now? What, what can we do to reduce those things? I know we're not quite at preventing yet, but um, that's dealing with it in the moment. Okay. In the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that helps a lot with just sorting things out. Like, how are we going to fix this now? And little things like that, the moment thing, for example, um, it doesn't have to be a huge, huge undertaking, uh, but there are things like that that are just so much bigger because it's not yeah. just like that little thing that's dealing with your data. It's a library that's doing so much within
0: your project. Exactly. And the first step to that is if, if you do find that you're in a code base that say, like you don't have to replace moment, like maybe you determine that, the package size of moment is totally fine. It's not a big deal. Maybe it's just used on the server. So the user isn't getting it. It doesn't matter. Um, But if you do determine that it needs to be replaced um, and again, you have hundreds or thousands of references to moment in your code base, the first step isn't just to replace moment. Maybe the first step is to abstract around moment. You know, that's when you create the utility helper and you start updating the code base in um, you could either do like a large sweep and replace all instances of moment to this utility helper that uses moment, or maybe you just do it in small sections that are um, more manageable for people to, uh, to review. Again, it depends on maybe break. your level of testing. Yeah, and then you can just like break everything all
1: at once rather than one thing at a time, right?
0: Exactly. I, I try <laughs> to break
1: the whole code base. Um, uh, it's ideal. Why? Don't, don't have to
0: Exactly, but then after once you get to the point where everything is using that utility helper, or maybe like ninety-nine percent of the code base is using that utility helper, um, you know, that's when you could then switch and do that second part of the technical debt addressing, where you end up switching it from Moment to Day.js or whatever it is, right? Like I'm just using that as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to like isolate and can contain it. And then being able to like address it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it
1: it takes a bit to get to an understanding of those patterns, especially like the, one you're saying about like it. and then how can we just change this thing? And I've read about people doing that with, um, like how they communicate, how they send their emails out, things like that. It's like, what if you want to upgrade, what if you want to change all of a sudden you're doing across thousands of places in your code base, or you can just have it like, boom, it's right here and you're good to go.
0: The, the other thing, which is one of my favorite things to do is either in preparation for work, um, that's going to be happening, or as you're in an area, just start addressing some tech debt that's there. Sometimes you have, um, tech debt that isn't big enough for you to address it. Like maybe, you know, that's, that's taken to going to like styling again, so. Oftentimes a lot of applications will have like a theme, um, some older applications or even modern ones might not be using a theme at all and just copy pasting the same hex code value throughout the entire code base. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've created a like theme provider or you're using CSS variables or SAS variables or whatever, and you're just in there and you just update it. You're like, I'm working in this section. I'm going to switch this to using the theme so that, that way in the future, if we ever You know, this is something that I saw recently. Uh, I think you saw this as well. Jira just recently introduced dark mode. Um, I have a feeling that it was probably a huge undertaking of implementing dark mode. The reason that they hadn't done it before is there was probably a lot of assumptions in the code base that it was always going to be a light mode theme. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you're working in an area, you know, let's use the theme variable instead of using like a hard-coded hex value um, or you know, switching this component, it's, uh, this is a class component and we want to swap it over to using a functional component or whatever it be you have. When you're in that area, you can address it as a part of the PR and just be able to say like, Hey, I just refactored this and it's good to go. Hopefully without creating any bugs, of course, <laughs> that's what the testing's for.
1: So how do we go about, uh, prioritizing these sort of things. So you've just brought up a couple different things there. One of them being like, oh, that's an easy one. I can do like, that's an easy win. I'll just knock that out. It's part of my PR, no big deal. Uh, To kind of that mid-level, like, hey, we've got a dependency that we're using all over the place and we might have to replace it, you know, a bigger one. And even these huge ones that are affecting maybe your entire user base, or like you just said, that Dark Mode, for example, for Jira may have been a, a huge, huge undertaking. Um, how do we prioritize those when it comes to looking at your teams, looking at how much time we have, um, how
0: difficult things are going to be? Yeah, I think it, I don't think that there's any one formula that will work for everyone, but I think you have, I would maybe put, what are we even talking about? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I think, I think you could probably put it into three buckets of things in order to figure out what matters the most is one, what is the level of user impact that this tech debt is creating? What is the level of developer impact that this um, tech debt is creating? And then um, how much time is it gonna take to address it? And you can figure out like, if there's something that has like high user impact and low cost to fix it, that is fairly straightforward of just fixing it. If it has high developer impact and low time to fix it, fix it as well. It's, it's when you start getting into like, it has high impact, uh, or like, sorry, low impact on both user and developer, and it's going to take a considerable amount of time to update it. That's where you start wondering, you're like, does it actually make sense to do this? Say ultimately it, it depends on the team of how they want to prioritize it. Um, it can even just be like, you know, once you've determined the level of prioritization, either like putting it into like t-shirt sizes, you know, large, medium, small, um, Then from there, it's then figuring out, like, how do you want to address it? Maybe you want to address tech debt on a quarterly basis. Maybe if your team does like a 90% uh, product work, 10% free time, maybe in your free time, you want to address that tech debt. So that that way you're doing it, you know, a little bit every single sprint. Ultimately, it depends on how your team does it or how your team wants to do it. Um, Not just you, but... Something that we're doing is uh, we do a lot of experimentation at Hopper. And so it sounds like what we're kind of thinking on is that we're going to, once an experiment has been called, um, we're going to be doing um, cleanup roughly every six months, just so that way it's, it's enough time where we can remove experiments. We might do quarterly, it's unsure. But six months is sort of what we figured is enough time where there'll be adequate amount of time to remove experiments without it constantly being disruptive to the product of like introducing code, deleting code, introducing code, deleting code. Cause that potentially will just create more bugs as well.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. And uh, it kind of addresses the technical debt versus features. Like it's important to be building things, to be building new things and moving the app forward. Um, so there's gotta be a certain balance and uh, you have gotta decide what is important. And at what point does the technical debt, need to come before certain product things yeah so we've talked a lot about what it is what the impact is how we find it but how do we prevent it can we prevent
0: technical debt
1: is it something that we're just we're never going to get away from
0: having technical debt is healthy um, because it usually means that you're trying to solve user problems in before solving technical problems in a lot of cases and so if we could develop software in a vacuum where we you know develop in a dark room for one or two years and then come out of that dark room and then share our brand new product with users uh, that would be great um, yeah if, if it be, all works you'd be one or two years behind everyone else then too exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know preventing it is going to be difficult. Um, I think really, um, being proactive is kind of like a a major thing is, and this is something that I have found is as an engineer, your job is to advocate for the technical part of the product. Um, and the product and management is usually advocating on the side of, you know, the, the customer. And Mm -hmm. so when you're writing the code, if you feel saying like, hey, I need some extra time so that I can address this, or if we if we do this in two weeks, then I'm gonna have to, you know, a month from now be able to address that or you know, whatever, whatever it be, being proactive and advocating for the technical side of things is huge. And it gives more visibility because oftentimes people that we're working with are non-technical and don't necessarily know the trade-offs that we're making in order to do things. And who knows, maybe you tell them what those trade-offs are and they say, oh, no, let's not do that now. Let's that's, that's actually like do the, the proper solution so that we don't have to come back later and clean it up. So
1: we can definitely put in place some practices. So within your engineering team, we can say, hey, these are some things that we're going to do in order to not accrue as much tech debt or minimize tech debt and balance that with getting things out. So we can do things like writing tests. We can have a certain process for code reviews. Um, We can, we can just set rules of how things are to be built. Like uh, maybe it's even something like deciding on when we're going to use dependencies or how we're going to use them. Uh, What uh, certain code styles, things like that, certain tools that we use within engineering.
0: I was Uh, about to say like those static, those static analysis tools are huge, you know, like ESLint and uh, Codacy and uh, SonarCube as ways of being able to implement code standards and saying like, no, we're not willing to budge on, you know, I I worked on a code base where (laughs) I implemented the no nested ternaries and it found, I think there was like 15 or 20 different nested ternaries that was in the application and I rewrote it all. I was like, no, we, we don't want this because it's going to cause too much complexity when it comes to fixing it.
1: Right. Exactly. It's a, that developer experience and just having to sit there and get your head around what's going on rather than just being like, Oh, I need to fix it right there. Like making it easy to understand. And that's, that's very much, um, beyond the like rules of your engineering department, but just that like a, a culture of quality, Um, a culture of excellence, being proud of your code, not just smashing things out. Sometimes you do need to, sometimes it's like, let's just get this out, it's gotta be fixed. But hopefully, unless you're in like the the pretty, uh, let's move real fast startup environment, hopefully you're in a place where you do get that opportunity to balance that and go, um, no, we can spend a, a little bit of extra time on this and we can make sure that that time is going to pay off in the future likely in multiples for less time that needs to be done. So we spend a little bit more time now, we save a lot of time
0: later. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, I've worked on projects where there's no level of ownership. Like I've worked at agencies mm. where you just like build something, give it to the client, and then you're not responsible for it. And uh-huh. you don't, you're, it's not, you don't have that same sort of like um, quality that is there as if, you know, a code base that you're going to have to be working in. If you stay at the company for years, um, you're probably going to care more about the way that it's written than a project that gets spun up in two months is given to the client. And you're like, all right, not my problem. Good Um, luck. Exactly. So, um, but culture is definitely huge on making sure that, you know, we're constantly, constantly like addressing technical debt, encouraging technical debt to be, um, fixed because if we only focus on the product at some point, we're going to be so slow moving that your competition, you know, I, I joked about building an isolation for one to two years. and You mentioned your competition will be one to two years ahead of you. Um, you know, you might get to that point where your competition is one to two years ahead of you because your tech debt takes you so long. Uh-huh. So it's, uh, it's a trade-off. It's one of those things where, Every company is going to do it differently. Um, I've seen places where they hire specific teams to sort of address some of the tech debt on projects. That's just a dedicated team.
1: And in other cases,
0: it's shared across um, you know, the, the teams that are there. Um, and I think if you're responsible for your code base and having to clean it up yourself, I think you'll also be less incentivized to create crap in the future. Um, because if you know that you're going to have to fix it, then you're like, well, maybe I should think twice about how I how I do this.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, I really think the the first one you said is much better. I don't know if I got the first and the second one mixed up here, but um, being re- each team being responsible for their own tech debt um, or the tech debt as a whole, is it going to, from what I can think of, is going to be a better way about it? Because saying, oh, you guys will deal with it all. That means I don't have to. It's kind of like, I don't have to write my own tests. Okay, that might just mean that, oh, I don't, oh yeah, that, that function ends up doing like six different things when it should be doing one so that you can test it really nicely and easily. Um, hopefully you've got some empathy and you're like, hey, let's make it easy for those guys. But when you take that off your plate, all of a sudden you're not thinking about it as much. You're not going, "Wait, hey, I got to test this too. Uh, oh, that's going to add a lot of tech to it. Okay, well, somebody else is going to deal with it. No big deal, like let's just do it. I think depends yeah, on the organization um again that startup that let's move super fast kind of thing that's going to be a little bit different but um in an established company i think everyone doing everything so to speak um, is going to be really helpful just to maintain the quality
0: yeah when um, the the team that i was referring to where they weren't responsible for the product afterwards they had a team that was essentially responsible for like greenfield development And so what they would do is they would have this, I'm going to refer to it as like a heavy hitter team. They would like spin up an application, be able to like get very quick to market. And then they would, that project would then be handed off to another team in order to like maintain it over time because Mm -hmm. that, that team is now building a new project. Yeah. And
1: and I guess that, that works too though, because you save a lot of time because that company is constantly just forefront. They know exactly what to do to spin it up. They probably got a lot of templates. They're just like, let's go. It's not, oh, wait, we haven't built a new project in 18 months or three years. And like, we got to talk about it a lot and plan a lot. You just, that's what you do. And I can see the
0: huge benefit of that. Exactly. And this same company had a dedicated testing department. And so you had like Estets or um, just like, you know, QA engineers that their whole job was to write automated test suites on the projects that were there. And Mm -hmm. so as an engineer that's, you know, you're not having to maintain it. You're not having to test it. So you're just like basically throwing crap at a wall and hoping that it sticks and then making it someone else's problem down the road. And then you're already on to the next thing. And sometimes I don't want to overgeneralize. You can see this with contractors who have a six month contract at the company. They know they're not going to be there. Maybe their contract gets renewed. Maybe it doesn't, Um, but they're not going to be there long enough to find out. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I I can definitely see the value in both in the right in the right situations, the right companies. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. So we have gone over what is tech debt? How to identify tech debt, the impact, impact that tech debt, I'm going to say this too many times, it's going to sound really weird, but the impact that it has on your organization and your engineering team, how to manage and migrate, how to prevent technical debt. Um, Chris, is there anything else you want to
0: add here? Is there anything we've missed we haven't gone over? The only thing that I will say is when I was a junior, um, I was often very ambitious on wanting to um, do tech debt, like in order to like move fast and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think we can sometimes be overexcited in trying to fix things. Um, a uh, What's the analogy or whatever? Um, have you ever heard of, I think we've talked about this before is Chesterton's fence, no. which essentially is like you have a farmer um that or you sorry you don't have a farmer you have someone that's like walking through a field one day and there's a fence that's there and the guy goes up to the fence and he's like why is this fence here and he he wants to like tear down the fence but there's a farmer that's on the other side and the farmer comes up and he says the reason that that fence is there is because there's a bull and the bull like the fence is there to keep the bull in the field um And it's one of those things that when we go to address tech debt, sometimes we might make some assumptions that like, oh, this is no longer needed, or, um, you know, this is like outdated, this just like refactor it. Um, You know, there's often a lot of business logic that is very tightly coupled to technical debt, a lot of like edge cases, a lot of um, just like product requirements. And I will say those product requirements can change over time and might not actually need to be in the code base anymore. But what we do need to do is like be aware of like what we're changing why we're changing it if it actually has a benefit um rather than just like change for the sake of change it's that has no value um and that's uh that's some feedback that i've gotten from my manager is when we're like tinkering with things they have to have actual like outcomes and um time box the tinkering And I think a lot of that extends into refactor work with technical debt is we need to like time box ourselves and be able to like actual have value that's coming out of our technical debt. Um, So I would, any feedback that I would say is like, you know, if you're wanting to address technical debt, make sure that um, even if you're coming with it with good intentions, make sure that you're not just lone wolfing it. You know, you're being communicative with your peers and your managers on like, this is why I'm doing it. And maybe they'll tell you now's not the time to do it. Now we need to be focusing on whatever.
1: I think that's really good advice for uh, early career, new developer, drop seekers, that sort of thing. Um, and the big one there
0: is listen to your manager. Listen to your manager. I mean, <laughs> I will say sometimes they're wrong, but they are your boss. And so even when they're wrong, they're right. Cause they get to choose the rules sometimes. That's true.
1: That's true. All right.
0: That has been uh,
1: Chris and I talking about technical debt in software. I hope you will check out our growing back catalog of episodes. Uh, This was episode 13. We've gotten into a lot of different topics here and uh, we love to hear from you. Uh, Tag us on LinkedIn, on your socials. Let us know what you thought of this episode. If there's something specific you'd like to hear us talk about, we would love to hear that. Uh, and get into that um you can find us on all
0: of your favorite platforms
1: Uh, what else needs to be said chris
0: that's it just you know we want to thank you as the listener for listening especially if you're still with us this long after almost an hour um it's uh You know, it's crazy to think that in the short time that we've been doing this, um, just on Spotify alone, Andrew, I sent you that screenshot where we've had 2000 listens since we started this on Spotify and, uh, it's, it's crazy. The amount of, uh, positivity that we've had doing this, um, please continue to, you know, engage with the podcast and with us. Um, you know, we're, it's just overwhelming. Um,
1: I agree. I appreciate you all. This is this is something we started kind of spun up on a whim and said, hey, this might be kind of cool to do. And you've shown us so much love and so much interest. So we, we really appreciate
0: that. Yep. So with that being said, we'll see you next time.
1: See you later.